Welcome to Spirit in Action. My name is Mark Helpsmeet. Each week, I'll be bringing you stories of people living lives of fruitful service, of peace, community, compassion, creative action, and progressive efforts. I'll be tracing the spiritual roots that support and nourish them in their service, hoping to inspire and encourage you to sink deep roots and produce sacred fruit in your own life. Let us sing song for the dream. Today for Spirit in Action, we will again be dealing with the tiny African nation of Rwanda, and we'll be talking with Ellen Segrin, who spent a month in Rwanda recently. I've already brought you guests who've been concerned with the welfare of this genocide-ravaged but powerfully recovering country. We've talked to David Zaremka, a founder of the African Great Lakes Initiative, A-G-L-I, or AGLI, which has done work in that area. I've spoken with Anna Sandich, who went to Rwanda as part of AGLI, and I've spoken with David and Debbie Thomas, who have spent more than 10 years in Rwanda as missionaries with the Evangelical Friends Church. Most recently, I brought you interviews with staff and workers connected with the Friends Peace House, interviews dating from my own trip to Rwanda last year. There are a number of remarkable stories to be shared, some of hardship, but even more of them of courage and devotion to peace and reconciliation. I think it would be hard to visit Rwanda, meet the people, and not be changed deeply by the experience. Of course, Rwanda evokes terrible images because of the horrible genocide that took place there in 1994, with the death of some 800,000 people. It seems unimaginable to most of us that neighbors could kill one another that way. But history and our lore are all too filled with stories of neighbors slaughtering each other out of fear, greed, lust, or hate. Listen, children, to a story that was written long ago about a kingdom on a mountain and the valley folk below. On the mountain was a treasure buried deep beneath a stone. For their very own Go ahead and hate your neighbor Go ahead and cheat a friend Do it in the name of heaven Justify it in the end While creating trumpets blowing Come the judgment day On the bloody morning after One tin soldier rides Up the hill, asking for the very treasure, tons of gold for which they'd kill. Came an answer from the kingdom with our brothers, we will share all the secrets of our mountain, all the riches buried. 
on earth was all it said. Go ahead and hate your neighbor. Go ahead and cheat a friend. Do it in the name of heaven. You can justify it in the end. Won't be any trumpets blowing come the judgment day on the bloody was One Tin Soldier from the soundtrack for the movie Billy Jack. It was originally thought of as an anti-war song back when it came out, but it speaks equally of the passions that led to the genocide in Rwanda in 1994. My Spirit in Action guest today is Ellen Segrin, and she journeyed this past year to Rwanda to learn about peace and reconciliation efforts there and to add her own hands into the balance. Ellen, thanks so much for joining me for Spirit in Action. Thanks for the invitation, Mark. It's really good to be here. You went last year to Rwanda, and I'm wondering what on earth motivated you to decide to go to Rwanda? Actually, it's a friend that I met by the name of Cecile Nirmana. She works with Friends Peace House and was here in the United States talking to a group of Quakers about her experiences during the genocide and her current work as a peace worker. And I had the honor of meeting her and translating for her. Was very impacted by what I saw. I have a lot of respect for her. And so she invited me to go. And then when I met her again in 2007, translating for her, I began to take the idea really seriously and look for a way that I could make that happen with the support of my community. Now, I have to say, Ellen, of course, I've been to Rwanda And I had my own fears going there because having heard about the genocide, weren't you afraid of going to a place that seemed so volatile, seemed so dangerous, seemed so lethal? Well, this was my first time going to Africa and obviously therefore my first time going to Rwanda. I have traveled quite a bit before that, mostly in developing countries. For example, I've been to Haiti, which also is not entirely the safest and most stable But it was funny to me when I was leaving for Rwanda, how many people equate Rwanda today with the genocide of 14 years ago, and also how many people would make statements like, well, sure, you've traveled, but you've never gone to Africa. Like, Africa was in its own league and and much more dangerous, volatile, you know, some kind of young and dangerous area. So it was, and, and as I went by myself, It was something that I spent some time thinking about. I think, too, areas of the world that we hear only know through times of violence sort of get 
frozen or paused in popular memory that way. I went to Vietnam, for example, and a number of people said, you know, don't trust the children, they'll stab you in your sleep, etc., etc., although that war also took place actually before I was born. So what was your experience? Did you arrive there and say, yeah, that person looks like a killer, that one person looks like I have to be worried about my life? Did you live in constant fear while you were there? No, I didn't. Actually, it's a funny mix because on the one hand, Rwanda was the most pro-American place I have ever been, including this country. I felt personally safe as a female traveling alone. I felt personally safe really at all times. There was much less even like people hassling you in the street than what I've experienced in other countries. It felt very safe. On the other hand, I remember, for example, going to the marketplace with a friend and watching the butcher chop up the, the cow, the meat, with a machete. And then I was suddenly staring at the machete and thinking, holy shit, I'm watching somebody chop up meat with a machete in Rwanda. And how often was that in previous times, a person that was being chopped up? And I think that because so much of the violence in Rwanda happened by everyday people against everyday people. It wasn't the sort of pseudoscientific genocide of, for example, the Holocaust, that it was startling to me how many of the implements of, in my opinion, evil, were just day-to-day implements that then you see used all the time. What was, in your opinion, the purpose of your going to Rwanda? You said you called on community. I'm assuming Twin Cities Friends Meeting and other folks to support your trip. What was the avowed purpose of your trip, and do you think you actually were able to live out that purpose? When I decided that I was going to be trying to go, I spoke with Cecile and also with David Zoromka of AGLI, African Great Lakes Initiative, about whether it was a good idea for me to go, about what, if any, contribution I could make. They both said, oh, no, definitely come. We'll find something for you to do. And to be totally honest, it was never completely clear to me. There was never, for example, an itinerary of what I would be doing when, etc. But a loose conglomeration of teaching English to some folks, participating in, possibly co-facilitating some workshops. And then a big part of my purpose in going, and I believe in the community's purpose of supporting me, was to look and see and to experience what I could of what was going on there and to come home and bear witness here. Being in Rwanda for a month, there's nothing amazing and wonderful that I could do that then is going to change the course of history for the Rwandans there. I didn't even build a building or anything like that. But to build bonds of community to be present, to help in the day-to-day ways that I could while I was there, and then to come home and continue that dialogue here was sort of the vision of the trip. Can you tell me, Ellen, about some of your experiences there, vignettes that capture for you the essence of Rwanda, the essence of your experience with Rwanda? Now, I'm assuming, by the way, most of the time you were amongst Quakers there as opposed to just out in public. My own experience was that the Quakers there are so heavily oriented towards peace and reconciliation, trauma, healing, all of that, that it was almost impossible for me to imagine that these are people who could have participated in the genocide. So what did you experience? 
It's funny that you should use the word vignette because actually when I travel, I try to journal. I know I should probably journal always because that's what deep and grounded people do. However, when I travel, I do try to journal. When I was in Rwanda, I was journaling and usually I have a very kind of freeform style of journaling and it really wasn't working and I kept trying and it wasn't working. And then I started writing vignettes instead of stories or thoughts. And all of a sudden it started clicking again. Um, so a lot of my memories of Rwanda are in the form of vignettes. Most of my time was spent with Quakers, certainly not all of it. Not everybody who participates in the workshops is a Quaker. They are open to other faiths as well. And I also had an opportunity to talk with some folks in the neighborhood, in the community, on the buses, what have you. So that was a very good opportunity for me. Certainly the most part of my time was spent with Quakers. In terms of vignettes, I spent the first couple of days there trying to have deep Kodak moments at all times, always. I really wanted to talk with people about you know, the essence of their faith, how the crucible of the genocide had forged, da, 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 da. and that didn't work out very clearly. I didn't run around asking people to talk to me about it, but I kept coming home thinking, ah, oh, we didn't have, you know, da, 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 da. When I was able to let go of that agenda, I found that things really opened up a lot more. I remember, for example, I was staying with the family of a friend. My friend was Quaker, um, and this was her brother-in-law, who was not Quaker. We were chatting. He spoke English and French fluently. We were talking, I think, in French about soccer, some match of soccer that he had seen. And then we started talking about the job situation. He was a merchant. But he wanted to go to Congo to work in reconciliation work there. And I said, dang, that sounds pretty dangerous. You've got a two-year-old kid or something along those lines. And he kind of laughed at me. And then he looks at me out of the corner of his eyes, and he's like, oh, yeah. Well, if there's one thing that living through a genocide teaches you, it's not to be afraid of death. Like he thought I was making a joke and then he was like, oh yeah, she doesn't get it. Like, oh yeah, she hasn't lived through a genocide. I said, oh, or something equally impressive. And then he said, he's like, yeah, you, you don't know what it's like. Again, as if he was remembering like, oh wait, that's right. And I said, no. And he said, well, you know how we're sitting here and we're talking it's like we're sitting here and we're talking and then see that screen door. The neighbor comes in and hacks me to pieces. That's what it's like. And he said it in such a, such a really trying to communicate way. Like, I tried this new fruit today. I really liked it. How can I explain the flavor to you? He wanted me not to understand in, in a deep way, but he just wanted to illustrate it for me so that I could follow along. And the conversation went on for some time. We talked about how in April, which is the month of the genocide, there's a month-long remembering ceremony, uh, mourning, a period of official mourning every April. And he talked about how that can be a time of division because there are so many folks in Rwanda who didn't live through the genocide. They weren't born then. Perhaps they had fled and then returned after the genocide. 
that don't necessarily understand why so many seem to be fixated on on the genocide, why people can't move past it. So we talked about that a lot, and that was the first time that I really talked with somebody outside of a peace worker about the genocide, past and also present. But it was funny because on the one hand, I don't always like traveling as an American. I don't like feeling responsible for American foreign policy, and I am occasionally tempted to call myself Canadian. It's so much more so with Rwandans, that Rwanda is synonymous with genocide. People would say, with a kind of self-deprecating air, oh, they started killing in the Congo after the Rwandans fled to the Congo in the aftermath of the genocide. A lot of the Hutu forces fled over the border to the Congo, which is when they escalated the violence in the Congo. And people would say, well, genocide, that's Rwanda's most famous export. Well, if there's something that we do well, it's killing. Just these macabre statements, these self-deprecating macabre statements. And at the same time, I'm sure you saw there are bumper stickers all over the place, proud to be Rwandan. The sense of people that would come up and say, well, some of the things you've seen here have been good, right? You, you didn't dislike this country, right? This sort of determination to find pride, to look beyond that past, while still so many people's psyches will forever remain touched by it. And the children currently being brought up that were never alive during the genocide are still touched by it because every April is this mourning period, yet to try to find a present as well. In your talking and visiting, did you ever speak with someone who self-identified as having participated in the genocide, not as a victim, but as having killed someone else? I remember mainly talking to people who were on the receiving end or the threatened end. I don't, actually. And it's funny because there is a layer of not speaking that happens in Rwanda that I think is partly cultural. It's an extremely stoic culture. I think that it's also partly state-encouraged. There's a lot of strictures on genocidal ideation or genocidal speech. And I think it's also just part of living through a genocide. I know that there weren't very many public occasions at all that people even mentioned the word Hutu and Tutsi. I went to a women's conference when I was there, and one woman who was a legislature said, we never talk about Hutus and Tutsis. I went to a class the other day, and the Tutsi children were saying about how they don't like Hutu children because their noses are big, or vice versa. And the whole room was like... I'm sure I'm the only one in the room who was not aware of the situation with the noses, but having it said in a public setting was such a taboo. So that's one aspect of it. I know that I talked with a friend who is a peace worker at the Friends Peace House, lost almost all of her very large extended and nuclear family to the genocide. We were talking about secondary stress, and she was listing off various factors that could add to her secondary stress. She said that uh, a man from her community had come up to her talking about how he hasn't been able to sleep in 14 years, um, how he's been in pain for 14 years because he killed two people during the genocide in the woods and left their bodies hidden in the woods. And the bodies were never found or never identified 
the family of those victims don't know what happened. The man himself who professes to have killed them was not in prison or charged with anything, nothing. He's torn now. He's been on this moral jigsaw puzzle for however long, for the whole 14 years. Do I tell? Do I not tell? I don't want to go to jail. I need to help support my family. This family doesn't know. Should I leave them an anonymous note? What should I do? And the person that he chose to confide in to help him through the process was somebody whose own family had been killed during that same period. And yet that person continues to wake up every day and try to find ways for not just the victims to heal, but also the perpetrators and to acknowledge that trauma is is often a human condition. Do you have any other vignettes of your time there in Rwanda that you'd care to share with people, Ellen? You know, Mark, there's one story that, to a large extent, I tend to think about when I think about this trip, partly because it was so important to me that day and partly because it feels like such a parable of so many of the things that I saw. When I was there, I went to one of the genocide memorial sites. I went to several, actually. This particular one was about a 45-minute bus ride out of Kigali. I took the bus there. I got off in this tiny town. It was hot because it was down out of the mountains, unlike the lovely temperatures that we had been enjoying in Kigali. It was dusty. It was flat. There weren't that many people there. It wasn't very well demarcated where the where the museum was. So I kind of wandered around expecting to be lost. And then I saw what looked like a church with a bunch of purple cray paper, purple being the color of mourning in Rwanda. And I figured that was the place. And I went to go inside. The woman who is the curator might be a glamorous word for it, but the woman who typically guides folks was not there. Instead, there was just the woman who was responsible for cleaning up. So she came and was concerned, and we kind of communicated through my two words of Kenya Rwanda and her 30 words of French what the situation was, and then she offered to show me around. I walked into the church, and the church had a bunch of small pews, sort of benches, that were piled, piled, piled with something. And I had read somewhere or heard from someone that it was the clothes of the people that had been killed there. But when I first walked in from the light and saw it, I thought somehow that it was the bodies of the people who had been killed there. And I don't frighten that easily, especially when I'm traveling, because you have a responsibility to look after your well-being. And I just stood there. I could not move. I could not move, which is so completely unlike me. And I just stood there praying, oh my God, don't, don't let that be true. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, they were clothes and not bodies, but of course, it genuinely was the site of a massacre. And the woman whose name I never got, she felt very honor bound to do her best to give me a tour. And she tried, and because we had such a limited amount of shared language, she ended up playing charades for a lot of the tour, which is a really graphic way to see a massacre site. Particularly as she lived in town and almost inevitably had loved some of the people who were killed there. 
so she showed me the various broken windows and the marks where the babies had been killed and the instruments that were used, the weapons that were used were on the, what do we call it? The table where the mass was celebrated. I don't think I could have opened a can with them. I mean, they were not impressive weapons and it took a lot of determination to kill somebody with it a lot. And she was pantomiming for me how you would kill someone with this. She was just standing there pretending and 14 years didn't feel like a long time all of a sudden. So we kept going through the tour and when we wrapped back around to the front, she showed me the door to the church, which was a metal open grate so that there was a metal rectangle and then several bars across it, which formed a barrier to people walking in, although, of course, air could get through. And there was also a wooden door, which was in splinters. And she pointed out to me the part of the the iron or the metal door where the middle bar had been pried out and the two neighboring bars had been bent so that people could get inside the church to kill their neighbors inside. And I remember thinking how on purpose it was, how completely purposeful it must have been to stand there and to think, this door is between me and my intended purpose. I can't get it open, so I will go and get these tools from this place. My friends, my community, will stay here and guard the church for me. I will come back. I will open it. I mean, that's not the work of a senseless mob. I guess I, I don't know. I've never been in a mob, but it seems so purposeful. So purposeful. So after this tour, I was, I was upset. I was very upset. And I asked her if I could sit down and she looked at me with so much concern. Like, oh dear, I'm so sorry, honey. Like, oh, of course you can sit down. Patted my shoulder because I had to survive the viewing of what she and her community had survived. And I sat there and prayed for maybe an hour. And then another woman came, a French woman who appeared to have quite a bit of money and who hired a French-speaking guide, which apparently is very common. And they pulled up in an air-conditioned car, and she got the full tour, and I asked if I could tag along because there were some things that didn't make sense to me. So I got the tour twice, and I was really struck by how much more sense it had made the first time without the the comfortable words, without the... At any rate, during the second tour, I noticed that there had been a shirt that had fallen to the ground, a shirt of one of the victims that had fallen onto the walkway. So I picked it up, and I put it back onto the pew. And the woman, who was following us pretty shy because suddenly she was the cleaning woman again... She saw what I had done, and she stepped forward and put her hand on my arm and said, thank you. And it was as if I had done something. It was as if 
I needed to be thanked. Then she, my earring, the back of my earring had been coming loose. And she fixed the back of my earring and put her hand on my hair for a second. And we just stood there. It was such a a mixture of of everything. Just the sense of sitting there and thinking, who are we that we can do this to another as humans? You know, God have mercy. How, how can we do this to each other? In the midst of this sense of being overwhelmed, of being inadequate, of being disgusted by the times in my life when I've bitched and moaned because the video that I wanted wasn't at the video store. All of the things that made me not good enough to be there. And then all of a sudden, just the fact of reaching out, being something, just the fact of trying, being something, was so humbling and such a call to keep being there, you know, to to try to be there. And that's something that I've thought a lot about coming home and facing pain that I can't heal, that it's really tempted to go to that place of why is this happening and what did NPR say and that, 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 that. And there is a responsibility for us to look at how our privileges pay out in terms of other people's suffering. I'm not saying that that should be ignored, but the idea of being able to sit with that pain and just be present with it, and my sudden belief that maybe that also is a call. Iji hamara sameneka, iji hugu chiga kwiri mirambo, induru miborogo wikado yera. Waruri hehe, mana waruri hehe.
If you speak Kenya Rwanda, the national language of Rwanda, you already know that that song was Manawaurihe, and in English that means God, where were you? It's by Jean Paul Samputu, a popular Rwandan artist, written around the 10th anniversary of the Rwandan genocide, which took place in 1994. For many people, I'm sure, it feels a very apt question. Where was God when the 800,000 murders were taking place? Some 80 to 90 percent of Rwandans consider themselves Christian, making it one of the most Christian African nations. And much of that Christianity is of a strong evangelical strain. So when Samputu asks, God, where were you? He is likely also asking where the people of God were during the genocide. Sad to say, Many participated in the carnage, and yet there were many who did all that they could to try to save their Hutu and Tutsi brothers and sisters. And that question is what leads us again to focus on Rwanda for this installment of Spirit in Action. In case you just tuned in, this is Spirit in Action, and I'm your host, Mark Helpsmeet. And we're speaking today with Ellen Segrin, and she she did, I'm tempted to say a pilgrimage, she did a trip to Rwanda last year where she came face to face and I think tempted to be part of a healing force in the aftermath of the genocide that happened there 15 years ago now. So Ellen sharing with us here on this Northern Spirit Radio production. And again, you can always listen to this program by going to my website, northernspiritradio.org, and you'll also find helpful links there. 
please, when you do visit, drop us a comment. Let us know what you're thinking. Give us suggestions. We welcome all of that. The Quakers that you're dealing with who are part of Friends of Peace House, or some of whom are Quakers, but it's a project of the Quaker yearly meeting there, they're a different flavor of Quaker than we are in the United States. I would think it would be interesting to hear your perspective on the Quaker culture and the religious culture, the spiritual culture that empowers these people to do peace work in the face of such a massively threatening environment. When I said that I was going to go to Rwanda, Cecile was teasing me that she would take me to church because she had seen me try to dance here. And in her opinion, it did not go very well. And there's quite a bit of dancing in Quaker churches. So she said that I could come, that I should come, that I was more than welcome to come, but that I should be ready to dance in public and that she would stand by me, but I should just gear myself up for it, which actually was more intimidating than she probably meant it to be. (laughs) But it's a louder form of Quakerism. It's much more evangelical, of course, much more Bible-based. There's pastors, there's dancing, there's singing. Most churches, however small, have at least two choirs. And so the actual process of worship is a different one. The, the church that I went to most Sundays when I was there, that I did most of my worshiping at, they had a, various times in the, in the worship, in the service, where you could stand up, for example, to share a blessing that you had received, to ask to be prayed for, visitors could stand up, etc. And the first time I stood up to introduce myself, I said, whatever I said in French, and then somebody translated it into Kenya, Rwanda. Hi, my name is blah, blah, blah. I'm here from blah, 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 etc., etc. And everyone was extremely polite. And the last time that I went to say goodbye, and they asked me to stand up and talk for a minute, I got up and I said, hallelujah. And everyone said, hallelujah. And then I said, amen. And they said, amen. And then I shouted it. Everybody was so excited. That, like, finally I was getting it right. We had a little alleluia, amen, time going back and forth. And then I said whatever I was saying. And it went so much better. It went so much better. And I don't yell in church, usually. So that was one of the differences. And just even even the sermons were so different from most sermons even that I hear here, for example, in Catholic churches. So the actual process of worship is different, but it's also a much more, my experience of Quakerism there was much more communal than my experience of Quakerism here. There was a lot more outspokenness about what it is that we believe. There was a lot more outspokenness about spreading the good news. There was a lot more day-to-day, what did you do today? I prayed 
type of an interaction. It was a more, more of a part of the public discourse. And I'm extremely private about my religion here. My boyfriend actually thought I was in a cult because I didn't want to explain what Quaker meant. So it was, it was a little bit of culture shock for me, but I think that it's a source of extreme support. And I think it's also a testament of courage that there is such an active church movement in Rwanda when you consider that churches were the scenes of so many massacres during the genocide, that there were acts of horrible violence perpetrated within congregations, that priests betrayed their congregations, vice versa, as well as priests dying for their congregations. I mean, all sides of the spectrums were experienced, but just like with the judicial system and so many other institutions, churches were both implicated in and destroyed by the genocide many, many times, and yet there's still a resilience about faith that brings people to church to heal, that brings people to God to heal. It was very powerful for me, too, the experience with people there and their experience of their outward faith. Now, you said you're very private about your religion, your spirituality. Can you give us at least a few pointers about how you got involved in Quakers, how this is wrapped up with your concern for peace for the rest of the world instead of just the white middle-class world that we could possibly fit into so well? How did you get into Quakers, and what part is it in your mission in life? I come from a pretty religiously diverse family. My father was Hindu most of the time that I was growing up. He had converted. My mother, Episcopalian. My stepfather, Buddhist. My stepmother, Catholic. We had a number of Jewish friends growing up. Ironically, it's become less diverse because my father randomly converted to Catholicism and my stepfather to Episcopalianism. So if you take a snapshot today, it wouldn't really look that diverse. But it's always been, for me, a given that your religion should be a reflection of your spirituality. There was never pressure to go to XYZ church or synagogue or temple. It was always a matter of finding a religion that you felt at home in, that your spirituality could shine in. So when I was growing up, I knew somebody who was Quaker, and I went to that meeting. He didn't actually invite me. I just had heard that he was and said I wanted to go, and he said I could come to the Madison meeting. I went there once, and then when I moved to Minneapolis in 2000, I started going to meeting fairly regularly, and actually, it took me probably four years to talk to anybody. I was ultra, ultra shy. People would make eye contact, and I'd just bolt for the door. So it's been a, a journey for me to sort of integrate my spiritual life and my public life or social life or any other part of my life. But actually, what attracted me to Rwanda is the fact that it's not... One of the things, right, that's so great about Cecile is that I admire her a ton, as most people would who knew her, possibly everyone. And yet, usually when I admire somebody, there's a comfortable distance. I wish I could be like them, but I'm not. I'm like me. I wish I could have that kind of patience, that kind of strength, da 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 as if they're sort of amateur saints and I would never be admitted. And there's a comfort there that says, oh, I could not do that. So... 
I don't have an obligation to try. I'll just be the best me I can and they can be better people and that's their thing. That's a big part of why I wanted to go to Rwanda and why in general I'm so interested in in looking at parts of the world outside of my sphere of comfort is that I think a lot of times when you go outside it's when you're able to see yourself the best. I don't know what it's like to live through a genocide and I never want to know what it's like. I do not think that the spiritual benefits outweigh the horror. But I think that by looking at that story of humanity, it allows us to see better what our own humanity is like.
remember I talked to a Congolese man when I was there, and he was talking about how he went to a AVP workshop, Alternatives to Violence Project workshop, uh, which is another largely Quaker project. And he suddenly realized that there was all kinds of violence in his life and that his insistence on not doing housework was a form of violence. And he started doing housework and his village was horrified, horrified. And there are so many forms of violence that one could concentrate on the Congo. I mean, he actually, his job is to work with women who were the victims of sexual violence in the refugee camps. That's his job. And he suddenly realized that his refusal to do housework at home was somehow tied to the rape and subjugation of women as an instrument of war. And so the sense of things being connected, that it's not an either or, either we solve the genocide in Rwanda or we're decent to the person who sits next to us at the bus, but that it's all part and parcel and that we can't separate it out. So I went to Rwanda because that's the place I feel like I can learn. My boyfriend actually, we had this long conversation about it because he is very focused on the community he lives in. And we were talking about the extent to which we're responsible for the outcomes of the foreign policy, the fact that I pay taxes, where those tax dollars go to, how it is that Native Americans don't happen to live on the land where my house is built anymore, da 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 Finally, he asked a question about whether I thought that it was better, that it was actually a better thing to do to help somebody who lived in Rwanda than it was to help somebody who lives in Shanhassen, Minnesota. And it kind of stopped me short because as much as on some level, I think there's a part of me that probably does think it's better. It's certainly more glamorous. It's more exciting. I think the question is really where you can go, where you can both help and be helped, where you can learn about yourself. And that's a question you can't say yes to everything. So it's a question of saying yes to the things that you're called to say yes to. Now, Ellen, you took a month and went over there. What is the work that you do here? Is there anything that you've studied or worked as here that prepared you to be a peace worker? Is this a major component of your life, or is this visit to Rwanda or visit to Haiti? Is this a bubble out of your life? Is this a continuation of the work you're doing here? Are you actually caring for the people in Chanhassett locally while you're caring for people in Rwanda? Bubble is a good word. And that's a challenge that I pose to myself really often lately, as a matter of fact. My paid job is as the coordinator for the Center for Cognitive Sciences at the University of Minnesota, which has very little to do with any of this, although it's a very good center and a very good mission. The scientists are doing a lot of good work, but it's not really directly connected. Previously to that, I had worked as a manager at a public health dental clinic for children, underprivileged children, as we say. And I moved to working at the university so that I could work towards a nursing degree, the idea being that then I can do public health nursing. So that's one part of it. And it's a struggle for me because at at my job previously, I was so consumed by the mission and had such trouble preserving boundaries between the mission and my sanity. And at my current job, I don't have that problem. Yet, I don't feel the the touchstone connection with the mission that I feel is important to me. So I'm working on finding a balance of that in terms of a professional life. 
to prepare for this specific trip, I participated in Alternatives to Violence program workshop, an AVP workshop at the workhouse in Minnesota, which is kind of like a mini jail for folks that have almost served their term or who have very short terms, prison sentences, jail sentences, which was fantastic. I've also done a lot of travel overseas, volunteering with different humanitarian missions. I lived in rural India for six months. That's why I was in Haiti twice for a month each. Uh, I've spent some time in Guatemala and El Salvador. But it's something that I've really been working on to figure out how to integrate, even beyond the whole professional and balance and sanity, how to integrate my experiences when I travel with my life when I come home. As you may have experienced, the first day when I got home from Rwanda, I was shocked and horrified with how very large my house is and how many pairs of shoes I have. I hate shoe shopping. I hate it. I don't own that many pairs of shoes by our standards, but I own way more than I need given how many feet I actually have. It's been really challenging because then force of habit, a month later, you don't see it with the same eyes. And I have not found a way to live in both worlds simultaneously without driving myself crazy. There is a degree of reacclimating that I feel I need to do to come home. But how do you reacclimate and still bear witness? How do you reacclimate and still live in the challenges and the calls that, that are real? And that's something that I've been having a really heartfelt struggle with. I actually have a clearness committee through my meeting, Twin Cities Friends meeting, that's helping me with sort of that quest for clarity. That's part of why I was so stoked when you said we could do this radio program. Ruby and I are doing a workshop at NYM. I'm trying to look for ways to talk to people about this, both in terms of actually what's going on in Rwanda. As a matter of fact, Cecile, who's trying to become a counselor to help all these traumatized folks, there's hardly any counselors in Rwanda. There's not a good educational system to become a counselor. And she's running out of money for it. So she's not going to be able to do it. And I hate talking to people about money. And I don't want to talk to people about money. But I am pretty sure that that's part of the call to continue. Not that the relationship is a financial one, but that it's important to look at the pieces of the need that you're able to move forward with at any given time. And when I'm in Rwanda, I can help people learn English. I'm a pretty darn good teacher. And when I'm here... I can help folks here understand some of the history. I can help them understand its impact on me. I can't really help them understand its impact on Rwandans, however. So being comfortable with those limits and speaking to the truth that you have without doing less than that and without holding yourself accountable for more. Today's Spirit in Action guest was Ellen Segrin, and if you want to follow up on some of the efforts she was talking about, check out the links at my site, northernspiritradio.org. 
I hope you appreciated the music in this interview, including Walk a Mile in My Shoes by Joe South. And we ended there with some Rwandan women singing and dancing. The theme music for this program is Turning of the World, performed by Sarah Thompson. This Spirit in Action program is an effort of Northern Spirit Radio. You can listen to our programs and find links and information about us and our guests on our website, northernspiritradio.org. Thank you for listening. I am your host, Mark Helpsmeet, and I welcome your comments and stories of those leading lives of spiritual fruit. May you find deep roots to support you and grow steadily toward the light. This is Spirit in Action. With every voice.